in the genre of stand-up comedy and those that <laughs> go to whoisthatlive.com for upcoming shows. And good morning, mutineers. This is the B coming at you from 2781 21st. Before we begin our show today, I want to remind you of neighborhood resource you may or may not know of. Como Mexico, no hay dos. Como San Jalisco, tampoco. For over 40 years, the Barra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Enchiladas? Tacos? Chilaquiles? A birria to die for? How about your favorite American dishes? They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco corner of 24th and South Ranes in the very heart of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco, where the food tells you you're in Mexico. Getting ready.
lot to laugh. Takes a train to cry. But I, I, I didn't get it wrong. 
Μπουστάλμα ένα δύο και τρία και τέσσερα φίλια Που φτάνουν στο λιμάνι ένα και δύο και τρία και τέσσερα πουλιά Πώς ήθελα να έχω ένα και δύο και τρία και τέσσερα παιδιά Πόσα θα μεγαλώσουν όλα να γίνουν λεβάνες για χάρη του πύρια Όσο κι αν ψάξω δεν βρίσκω άλλο λιμάνι Τρελή να με έχει κάνει όσο το πύρια Όταν βραδιάζει τραγούδια μαραδιάζει και τις πένιες του αλλάζει γέμιζε από παιδιά. Πόρτα μου σαβώ, δεν υπάρχει κανείς που να μην τον αγαπώ Και σαν το βράδυ κοιμηθώ, ξέρω πώς, ξέρω πώς θα τον ονειρευτώ Πετρά διαβάζω στο λαιμό και μια χά, και μια χάνδρα φυλαχτώ Γιατί τα βράδια καρτερώ, στο λιμάνι σαβώ, κάποιον άγνωστο να βρω Όσο κι αν ψάξω δεν βρίσκω άλλο λιμάνι Τρέλη να με έχει κάνει όσο το πειραιά Πόταν βραδιάζει τραγούδια μαραδιάζει Και τις πένιες του αλλάζει γέμιζε από παιδιά Good morning, Labor and Love fans. After two or three weeks, <clears throat> I'm back, and the labor movement never went away. Good to be here, and that was a lead-in, because today is <clears throat> amazing show. We've got a lot of confluences. For example, we have Greek Independence Day. Zito Elas. This is the day on March 25th, 1821, that the Greek independence movement was officially declared. What you just heard was, of course, Melina Mercuri singing a song from Never on Sunday written by the leftist composer Manos Hajidakis. And before that, we had March 24th, celebrating March 24th, which is 
the birthday of my great buddy and friend and brother, Rokong. Playing a song that he turned me on to by Brittany Howard. And before that, Susan Tedeschi, hoping I'm pronouncing that right, picking an amazing blue series of blues solos. And Bob Dylan's song, It Takes a Lot to Laugh, It Takes a Train to Cry. And if you watch the video, you see how delighted and amazed Bob Dylan is by this woman, Susan. Just picking the hell out of song. And it's March 25th, Greek Independence Day, like I said, but we also have a sad anniversary. March 25th, 1911, the Triangle Shirt Waist Riot. Hundreds of young women forced to jump to their deaths because someone wouldn't let them leave the door open because all the exits were closed because owners of the company didn't want their workers to have access. We'll go through these and many more, but before we do, let's talk about who we are and what we do on this show. This is the bee, stinging the high and the mighty, where it hurts the most. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. It's only a waste of time. If you don't have a seat at the table, negotiating table, that is, where you work, <laughs> you're on the menu. We've got some labor, sh labor news today. Right to work in Michigan. Right to work is rescinded. Right to work laws rescinded, which are anything but the right thing. Child labor didn't we get rid of child labor long ago? <clears throat> of course not. You don't get rid of capitalism. You don't get rid of child labor. Capitalist is always trying to minimize his or her out spending. The way you do that is you hire children who can be bossed around who can be made to work long hours for cheap. And you can all clothe it in language of what a favor you're doing for their family, letting their children work. And the UTLA strike, a big deal, a big deal, a three-day strike that brought an end to, finally brought an end Friday. 
So, welcome to Labor and Love, the show where we tell you how it is. And how it isn't. Let's start out first with Michigan's right to work law. Now, you know, if you have any knowledge of the labor movement or of what right to work is, you'll know that it's anything but right to work. It gives your boss the right to work you to death. Right-to-work laws are union-breaking laws. In other words, a shop where the workers are trying to unite. Right-to-work law makes it very difficult for unions to unite because it says to the worker, look, you want to work? We'll give you a job just as long as you don't mess with this union, okay? It's, it's my right to work you to death if I want to. Whereas workers are saying we should unite and be together and deal with our employer as they deal with us in a unitary way. We represent all the workers here. Well, right to work laws have been passed all over the country lately. Michigan, long known as a mainstay of organized labor, on Friday became the first state in decades to repeal a union-restricting law known as right to work that was passed over a decade ago by a Republican-controlled legislature. Why is this a big deal? Because states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Indiana, these were strongholds of the traditional labor movement. And over the past 10 years or so, Republican governors ha and legislatures have been passing right-to-work laws. States' right-to-work law had allowed those in unionized workplaces to opt out of paying union dues and fees. Its repeal is seen as a major victory for organized labor, with union membership reaching an all-time low last year. So in other words, if you're uh, so inclined, you could work at a shop that was represented, some of the workers are represented by a union, and the union would have to pay for cases brought by you. Say you had a problem with your boss and went to a trial, went to you know, meet with your boss. If the union represents you, union is required to represent you, and you don't have to pay them anything for it. So Gretchen Whitmer, the the Governor of Michigan, remember, there were some MAGA people who wanted to hang her, kill her. Today we're coming together to restore workers' rights, she says, protect Michiganers on the job, and grow Michigan's middle class. 
Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer said in a statement Friday after signing the legislation. And a Republican stood up and said, well, right to work, our pro-worker. The only problem is that in the right to work states, prevailing wages are much lower than in union states where unions prevail. Union jobs pay you know, in a percentage, 15 or 20 percent more than a normal non-union job. Plus, the workers at the union job have someone to take their case, back them up. The second-term governor also signed legislation restoring a prevailing wage law that had been repealed by Republicans in 2018 requires contractors hired for state projects to pay union-level wages. What was the first thing that George Bush and his Republican allies did after the horrible, horrible hurricane in New Orleans? First thing they did was take away the prevailing wage law. so that contractors could hire people and work them lower and lower wages. Supporters of the repeal poured into the state capitol in Lansing earlier this month as the House and Senate took up legislation before approving it along party lines after liber the liberation. A new day here in Lansing. It's time to once again make Michigan known as the place where workers prevail. Democrats had argued that the law allowed for free riders that received union representation without having to pay fees or dues. Without it, unions can now require all workers in a unionized workplace to pay fees for the cost of representation. So if the union provides legal support for you, you got to pay your fair share. You don't have to pay all of it, but you have to pay your fair share. Michigan used to be the seventh highest percentage of unionized workers when the right to law work was enacted in 2012, but that dropped to 11th in 2022. Michigan becomes the first state in 58 years to repeal a right to work law, with Indiana repealing its in 1965 before Republicans there restored it in 2012. In 2017, Republican legislature approved a right-to-work law, but it was blocked from going into effect before voters overwhelmingly rejected the legislation. Twenty-six states still have right-to-work laws in place. There were massive protests in Indiana and Wisconsin in recent years after those legislatures voted and here we are. I mean, this makes it crystal clear how important those state legislatures 
This is where all the bad work, the anti-worker things are passed and the anti-trans people, all those anti-trans laws and all those laws are passed <coughs> by state legislatures. This is where the wacko ideas come. This is where people like Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene get their start in these state legislatures. So please pay attention to those elections. They're very important. Okay. That's one of our labor one of our labor news. Here's this one. And before we read this one about putting more children to work. I want to take our labor cards again. Cards are very popular. Convention. And read one about a young man named Iqbal Masih. Who was Iqbal Masih? Probably not a name most people are familiar with. Actually, one of the great champions of the working class in the last 20, 30 years. Iqbal Masih, labor card number 14. It is estimated that around the world, 200 million children work each day in slave-like conditions. Bosses prefer children because they are easy bullies. One of these was Iqbal Masih, a Pakistani boy who was sold into bonded labor when he was four years old. His father sold him into bonded labor to pay for his sister's wedding. <coughs> Iqbal was chained to a loom like so many others. His job was to sew rugs 14 hours a day, for which he earned about 20 cents. And the rug people, the owners of these companies and the managers of these companies say they have to have children working because only children's hands are tiny enough to make the rugs that a lot of the Pakistani economy depends on. Iqbal escaped twice, but both times the police returned him to his owner. He finally escaped for good when he was 10 years old and became famous in the fight in child labor, traveling all over the world with his message. And there's a feature, if you want to look it up, of Iqbal visiting a school in New York. After he left, the kids raised money to start a school for child workers who had been released from bondage go back to school and learn how to play and have a promising life. Iqbal went back home and he was mysteriously, you're talking about a 12-year-old kid now, mysteriously murdered while he was riding his bike. And of course, 
the authorities all denied that it had anything to do with his work. He's a worldwide figure, labor figure. Oh, that had nothing to do with anything. <clears throat> well, okay. I, I sometimes when I make presentations at these conventions, I read an article by. I read an article by uh, Utah Phillips. See if we can find it. And it's about how child labor laws were passed. Fritos, you know, okay, I guess I'll have to deal with that later. Okay. Um, dangerous, this is New York Times by the editorial board, and it says, the dangerous race to put more children to work. In February, the Department of Labor announced that it had discovered 102 teenagers working in hazardous conditions for a company that cleans meatpacking equipment at factories around the country. A violation of federal standards. Miners ages 13 to 17 were working with dangerous chemicals and cleaning brisket saws and head splitters. Three of them suffered injuries, including one caustic burn. Ten of these children worked in Arkansas, including six at a factory owned by the state's second largest private employer, Tyson Foods probably realize that Tyson makes chickens. Those chickens that end up <laughs> where you sh go to shop come from Tyson. Rather than taking immediate action to tighten standards and prevent further exploitation of children, Arkansas went the opposite direction. Earlier this month, Governor Sarah Heckabee Sanders, a Republican, used to be Trump's uh, press secretary, signed legislation that would actually make it easier for companies to put children to work. The bill eliminated a requirement that children under 16 get a state work permit before being employed, a process that required them to verify their age and get the permission of a parent or guardian. Arkansas is at the vanguard of a concerted effort by business lobbyists and Republican legislatures to roll back federal and state regulations that have been in place for decades to protect children from abuse. Echoing that philosophy, bills are moving through at at least nine other state legislatures that would expand work hours for children lift restrictions on hazardous occupations, 
allow them to work in locations that serve alcohol or lower the state minimum wage for minors. Labor Department says there has been a 69% increase since 2018 in the legal employment of children. The response in these states is not to protect children from exploitation, but instead to make it legal. Voters in these states may support deregulation, but they may not know that businesses can use these bills to work children harder, cut their wages, and put them in danger. There is time, there is time for them to persuade lawmakers to say no to these abuses. Ms. Sanders made it clear in her inaugural address in January the disdain for the protective role of government that is driving this effort. As long as I am your governor, the meddling hand of big government creeping down from Washington, D.C. will be stopped cold as the Mississippi River. This is how they say it. They don't say, okay, we're taking away this law that protects children. They say, we're taking away the overregulation. We want to get the government off our backs. Deregulation of the big neocon demands. One of the principal lobbying organizations Pushing these bills in several states is the National Federation of Independent Businesses, a conservative group that supports Republican candidates and has long ago opposed most forms of regulation as well as the Affordable Care Act. Check it out. The New York Times has recently done a whole series of investigations about child labor here in the United States. I thought this one was over, didn't you? I thought we had passed all this stuff and children were no longer forced to work. Worldwide, 200 million children go to work every day instead of to school. And I'm sure the statistics in the U.S., like a 70% increase in child labor. And the thing is, these kids are a lot of times sent here by their parents and picked up by sponsors who exploit them. And we could go on and on and on. Okay, let's play some music. Celebrating Aretha Franklin. Strong. 
This is the B in the pretty much at the top of eleven o'clock hour. That was, of course, the Honky Tonk Women by the Rolling Stones. Cheryl Crow, the Dixie Chicks, Pat Benatar, Emmy Lou Harris. On and on and on. And before that, we had Aretha Franklin singing, You'll Never Walk Alone. Okay, this is the B, and you're tuned to Mutiny Radio. And before we go on, I want to read a message. of our sponsors, in this case, someone from the heart of the mission. You go down to South Van Ness and and 20th Street, you will find a restaurant called San Jalisco. Now, most of you, if you're Mission District people, you already know about it. But for those of you who don't, listen up. Como México, no hay dos. Como San Jalisco, tampoco. For over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Enchiladas, tacos, chilaquiles, a birria to die for. What about your favorite American dishes? They got them. Find it all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South Van Ness, in the very heart of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco, where the food tells you you're in Mexico. And when you go there, tell them. Tell Josie, tell Sophie, tell Magda, labor and love sent you. Okay, come on down to San Jalisco where the food tells you you're in Mexico. Very wise thing to do. Okay, let's turn now to... uh, Greek Independence Day. The whole world turns to celebrate Greece's 202nd year of freedom. Greek Independence Day commemorates the start of the war of Greek independence in 1821. And it coincides with the Greek Orthodox Church's celebration of the Annunciation. And Mary was told that she would bear the Son of God. Greece had been part of the Ottoman Empire since 1453. The Greek revolt was precipitated on March 25, 1821, when Bishop Hermanos of Patras raised the flag of revolution over the monastery of Agia Lavra in the Peloponnese. Cry freedom or death became the motto of the revolution. Freedom or death. This is about the time within 10 years 
of the Mexican Revolution. And it was a cleric, Tam Yin, who raised the flag of revolt. Miguel Hidalgo. Greek struggle. Cry freedom or death became the motto of the revolution. From antiquity to today, Greece has lived through major historical events. The country was involved in many wars. Persian Wars, the wars of Alexander the Great, and modern Greek history from 1821 till today. Greek was involved in two major wars. War of Independence against the Ottoman Empire and World War II. Greece is kind of a... Stands in, you know, in the right in the middle of Asia and Europe, and historically has been a battleground. In celebration of Greek Independence Day, towns and villages throughout Greece hold a school flag parade, during which schoolchildren march in traditional Greek costume and carry Greek flags. There are also armed forces parades. The biggest one takes place in Athens. The entire world returned to Greece, commemorating over 200 years since the declaration of its war and independence. In every corner of the globe where members of the Greek diaspora are present, the anniversary will be marked. Iconic landmarks in all those countries will be illuminated blue and white, in honor of the Greek people and their struggle for freedom. Greece is the, one of the oldest spoken languages in Europe, has been spoken for more than 3,000 years. Greece enjoys 250 days of sunshine or 300 sunny hours a year, most among European countries. No point in Greece is more than 85 miles or 137 kilometers from water. Greece has more than s more archaeological museums than any other country in the world. There are more than 2,000 islands in the Greek territory, but only 170 are populated. And in honor of Greek independence, I wanted to play a little music here. Abetiko. Certain kind of music kind of corresponds in, uh, in our culture to the blues. Um, sort of began as low-class music. In Greece, the low class corresponds to the word Turkish. The Turkish quarters of Greece are typically the poorest ones. Low class workers, low paid workers. So here's some rabetiko.
Hebetico, Greek underground music. Play another one. Here's the manager again. Betico became popular in the 1930s. This is dedicated to my mother, a Greek lady who taught us so much, not maybe what she thought she was teaching us, but much more, much more important. Okay, let's get back on the labor beat. Um, Irene, good night. Okay. Saw the movie Elvis, and I just want to play this one. You're looking for trouble? Came to the right place. Looking for trouble? Just look right at my face. I was born standing up and talking back. My daddy was a green Around 
never look for trouble, but I've never ran. I don't take no orders, no kind of man. I'm only made out of flesh, blood, and bone. He's gonna start a rumble, don't you fight? Sometimes I just play whatever I feel like, but uh, that'll be the only male who's performing today. Here's Peggy Sue. Sparrow and had wings and could fly. 
I'd write my love a letter that she'd understand. I'd send it to the island where waters are flowing, and I'll think of my love wherever I go. Peggy Seeger there. That one was entitled Pretty Sarah. Okay, lady, how do you spend your time, lady? Got no time to be standing here gossiping, got no time to be answering. Beds need making, the dishes need washing, and then to me dusting and polishing. Scrubbing and sweeping and sewing and cleaning and cooking and ironing. Are you listening? I'm a production line all by myself, only my wages are missing. Three kids of eight and seven and two. Leisure is just a mythology. When it's over my head, I can't go to bed. It's temporal psychology. Mary's bed wetting and Tommy is jealous. A baby is yelling, it's driving me crazy. A nurse and a nanny until I'm a granny. But why is it nobody pays me? I care for a lovely old mother-in-law. She's 87 and cranky. Husband's home with a feverish cold. Run for the tea and the hankies, the hot water bottle, the telly, the paper, and now the kids have it. It must be contagious, and now I'm the family medical staff. But where the hell are my wages? If wives and mothers all took to their heels, you'd soon be needing an army. And paying them all their union wages, I bet it would drive you farmy. All eyes and ears, all hands and feet, my sign is Gemini, should have been two of me. I do the work of a dozen a day, but where are the wages due to me? With wages so low, prices so high, budgeting must be meticulous. The hours I spend in looking for bargains and coconuts really ridiculous. And though my man's doing all that he can, what he brings home isn't making his meat, and I'll have to go out for a wage myself if the family's gone to keep eating. Hi, up in the morning before all the family get the grub on the table. Beds need making, the dishes need washing, it's everything done on the double. Drop the kids off at the school and run from me bus. Don't you think it's outrageous? I'd more than enough with me labor of love. Now I'm doing another for wages. Me boss is as good as a boss can be, but the office is just like a nursery. Smoothing his life, soothing his trouble, remembering his anniversary. Reminding, hurrying, scurrying, worrying into the frying pan, out of the cage in his home from home, wherever I roam. But at least I'm getting my wages. On my way home, I shop for the dinner and then have a tidy around. Billy comes in, sits down with the papers, says, girl, don't you ever sit down? Men of the world, would you think it was strange, think it was right, think it was funny to slog every night at a job for free after slogging all day for your money? So give me my wages, give me my due, I'm opting out of the system. 
give me bonuses, overtime, sick leave, and paid holidays and a pension. Then I can strike, work to rule, or go slow, or object to conditions and hours for wages would give me the power to have a say in a world where a person who happens to be female is supposed to be happy to spend all her time as a baby minder, sock finder, vacant fryer, destroyer, floor sweeper, light sleeper, brow smoother, man the hoover. Nappy folder, hand holder, onion chopper, mess mopper, button sewer, to and fro, or tidy upper. What's for supper? Money stretcher, run and fetcher. Cake baker, back acre, early waker, bed maker, breakfast maker, lunch maker, tea maker, sandwich maker. Lady, what do you do all day? Lady, it's your only life. When they ask you, what do you say? Oh, I don't work. I'm nothing but a housewife. <laughs> Peggy Seeger, nothing but a housewife. Where are my wages? <laughs> Where indeed? Where indeed? We've still got a couple of labor stories, one very positive and upraising, and the other depressing at times. Something we never, never should because these incidents keep happening. All right, well, let's start with the big one. L.A. U.S. and union workers who led massive strike reached tentative settlement. Strike was uh, by SEIU, by support staff at schools, the bus drivers, cafeteria people, janitors, the paraprofessionals. These are the people who are the backbone of any school. And they went on strike for better wages. It was going to be a three-day strike. And they were joined by UTLA, the Union of Teachers in Los Angeles. Tentative agreement reached Friday between the Los Angeles Unified School District and the union representing support staff won raises of about 30% or more for the lowest wage workers. One day after the end of a strike that shut down schools for three days. The parenthetical expression <coughs> add, add in here. Los Angeles, it turned out, had $4.97 billion in its reserve fund. If approved by union members, the agreement, this is the LA Times, by the way, achieved after mediation with Mayor Karen Bass, could prevent campuses from being closed again to 420,000 students and Fair workers from job actions would have been difficult to bear. Local 99 of SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, which represents about 30,000 employees and includes bus drivers, teacher aides, special education assistants, custodians, and food service workers, led the strike that began Tuesday and ended Thursday. Also on strike in solidarity were members of the United Teachers of Los Angeles, which represents about 35,000 teachers 
counselors, therapists, nurses, and various. DTLA remains in negotiations for a contract. Insert. This something similar is happening in San Francisco as teachers are having one-day strikes, uh, picket lines all over the city, two schools at a time. The deal with Local 99 is not an across-the-board increase, but spread out over time, and also affected by length of service and current salary. So some workers will receive less than 30%, and some more. Here in San Francisco, the, in California, this agreement will set new standards, not just for Los Angeles, but the entire state. Max Arias, executive director of Local 99, said in a joint news conference at City Hall with Bass, LA School Superintendent Alberto Calvajo called it a historic day. Hinting at the acrimony of the rhetoric during the dispute, Bass said the government, the agreement would move the parties toward collaboration. Executive Director Arias and Superintendent Carvalho stepped up in such a big way. Hopeful that the beginning of a new relationship that will lead to a stronger LAUSD. All three leaders talked of a strike and a settlement that was bigger than Los Angeles in the school district, emblematic of the problems affecting lower-class families. Of course, the workers' issue. If you, you don't make enough money to survive, to live in a city, property values and uh, Rants are going through the roof in L.A. as well as everywhere else in California. Certainly here in San Francisco. This is about, Bass is talking, this is about the high cost of living in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, as everyone knows, has become virtually unaffordable. Adias added, I want to appreciate the 30,000 members that sacrificed three days of work despite low income raise the issue to society, but as well as a society that would be better for all workers, all working for everyone. William B. Gould IV, a Stanford law professor, emeritus, author, and former chair of the National Labor Relations there is, in general, a greater willingness on the part of organized labor to stand up for workers in the last fifty year, last year or so. A greater audacity. Well, I wouldn't call it audacity. I would say they're forced to. They have no choice. They're being priced out of their own city. Three-day walkout was an attempt to reach an equitable settlement, but also an attempt to get the attention of the public. Gould was not surprised that UTLA honored the picket line. What is unusual about this is the fact that these local 99 workers 
become so marginalized by these established picket lines. At the grassroots level, the deer deal translates to Erica Riverdale, Riverdy, moving from about $15 an hour to the district's new minimum of $22.50 an hour. Rio Verde, who works as a community representative at Parmalee Avenue Elementary School, says the raise will provide much needed hopes to be able to buy ingredients for meals her son wants to eat rather than having to buy only food that her mom chose. I know how happy I am. Finally, something is changing. Well, when you stand up and make your point and you're unified, as Dolores Huerta pointed out, we win when we're unified, because there are more of us workers than there are of you. Carmen Carabajal, who works as a special ed assistant at Bandini Elementary School in San Pedro, the extra money will go toward paying off more than $4,000 in credit card debt she accumulated to pay off utility bills gas in her car. She also hopes to repair the leaky deal so they'll be able to breathe a little bit. Able to breathe. Anyway, congratulations to Local 99 and UTLA for pointing out to us yet again that when we unite and we're together, causes just communities with us. Okay. Let's see. A darker chapter. Labor history. Triangle shirt waist fire. Short documentary. On the 25th of March 1911, a fire began at the premises of the Triangle Waste Company in New York City. What started as a small blaze in a bin full of fabric scraps soon turned into an all-consuming blaze that gutted the top floors of the building. Before it could be extinguished, more than a hundred workers would lose their lives in what was at the time the worst industrial accident in the history of New York. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory occupied the upper floors of the Ash Building near Washington Square Park. Today, this building is known as the Brown Building and is owned by New York University. When it was first built in 1901, however, its main use was industrial. Many garment makers took up residence in the building, attracted by its central location and the fact that it was advertised as fireproof. 
The Triangle Waist Company's main product was a type of woman's blouse known as a shirt waist. These usually featured a collar and buttons down the front, but were otherwise fairly simple. The kind of functional but fashionable garment that a woman might wear in the workplace at the time. The shirtwaist factory occupied the top three floors of the Ash Building, floors 8, 9 and 10. Crammed into this space were hundreds of workers. The factory employed many immigrant workers, mostly Italian and Jewish women and girls. In many cases, these people were new to the country and keen to take whatever jobs were available. The working conditions were undeniably poor. Workstations were crowded very close together, and the factory floors had little ventilation. In summer, the space would become swelteringly hot, particularly as workers would be surrounded on all sides by the fabric they were working with. Scraps carpeted the floor of their work area, and huge swathes of material hung from lines above their heads. At around 4.40pm on the 25th of March, workers noticed a faint, fiery glow in a bin full of fabric scraps. Although it has never been conclusively determined, this might have been a discarded match or cigarette. As they watched, the bin burst into flames. Flames which licked upwards and ignited the tissue paper templates that were hanging overhead. Burning scraps of tissue paper fluttered across the factory floor, landing on and igniting stacks of fabric, scraps bins and other flammable materials. Within seconds, what began as a tiny fire had become an inferno, blazing its way through the eighth floor of the building. A bookkeeper there used a telephone to contact workers on the tenth floor and warn them of the fire, providing them with a few extra seconds to evacuate. There was, however, no fire alarm, nor any other way to alert workers on the ninth floor, who learned of the fire only when smoke and flames arrived on their floor. Terrified workers scrambled to evacuate, but found that their options were limited. Of two available staircases, one had been locked by the foreman on duty as a precaution against theft by employees. This foreman, incidentally, was among the first to leave the building down the other staircase, taking the key to the second stairwell door with him. Though some workers were able to escape down the unlocked set of stairs, this route was soon blocked by the spreading smoke and flames. Unable to go down to ground level, many took the counterintuitive decision to flee upwards to the roof. The majority of those who took refuge on the roof would ultimately survive. Freight elevators represented another possible escape route for workers trapped by the fire. Two elevator operators, Joseph Zito and Gaspar Mortellalo, made three trips up to the ninth floor of the factory while the fire burned around them. They were only able to make three trips before both of their elevators became unusable. In the case of Gaspar's elevator, this was due to its rails warping from the heat of the fire. In the case of Joseph's elevator, this was due to workers on the burning floors above prying open elevator doors and leaping down into the shaft to escape the flames. The weight and impact of their bodies on top of the elevator car disabled it completely. This left only one option for the remaining trapped employees. The external fire escape bolted onto the outside of the building. This was a flimsy structure entirely unsuited to a building of such high occupancy. It was also in extremely poor condition, and did not extend all the way to the ground. 
This meant that workers pouring out of the building onto the fire escape had nowhere to go. As more and more people congregated on the metal steps, the weight became too much for the steps to bear. The fire escape twisted and peeled away from the building. Around 20 people were on the steps when they finally failed. The majority of them fell to their death. A few were left clinging to the broken remains of the fire escape, with no way to move either up or down until the smoke and flames overwhelmed them. Though the fire department was on scene within minutes, firefighters found themselves unable to effectively fight the flames or rescue trapped workers. The ladders they were equipped with extended only to the sixth floor of the building, two floors short of where they were needed. With no hope of rescue and all possible routes of escape closed to them, scores of workers were left with no choice but to jump from the windows of the factory. A witness, Louis Waldman, described the scene. The police had thrown up a cordon around the area, and the firemen were helplessly fighting the blaze. The 8th, 9th and 10th stories of the building were now an enormous roaring cornice of flames. Horrified and helpless, the crowds, I among them, looked up at the burning building, saw girl after girl appear at the reddened windows, pause for a terrified moment, and then leap to the pavement below. This went on for what seemed a ghastly eternity. Occasionally, a girl who had hesitated too long was licked by pursuing flames and, screaming with clothing and hair ablaze, plunged like a living torch to the street. Life nets held by the firemen were torn by the impact of the falling bodies. The fire was eventually extinguished, and firemen began the grim task of searching the gutted building for survivors. There were few. One of them was a 21-year-old man named Hyman Meschel, who had been working on the 8th floor when the fire began. He had survived by smashing his way through the glass door to the elevator shaft and sliding down the elevator cables, severely injuring his hands in the process. He had then taken refuge in the basement, which flooded with water from the firefighting effort until he was almost completely submerged. Rescuers found him there hours later, once the fire had finally been extinguished. Hyman was extremely fortunate to survive. Many of those who had been working around him when the fire began did not. In total, 146 people died as a result of the fire. In the immediate aftermath of the fire, the company's owners, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, both of whom had survived the fire by escaping to the roof when it began, were charged with manslaughter. After a trial, during which they cast doubt on the credibility of many of the survivors, they were found not guilty of these criminal charges. It was only later that a civil suit ruled against them, finding that they had caused multiple wrongful deaths. They were ordered to pay $75 compensation to each victim, the equivalent of a payout of around $2,000 today. Just a few years after the fire, Max Blank was arrested for knowingly locking fire escape doors in another factory during working hours. He was given the minimum possible fine for this infraction, and neither of the factory owners ever faced any further consequences for the deaths their negligence had caused. The fire did, however, inspire others to make some positive changes. 
In the years that followed, New York was at the forefront of workers' rights, passing numerous bills and developing regulations to ensure decent working conditions and prevent a repeat of the tragedy. As a direct result of the fire, the American Society of Safety Professionals was founded in New York later that same year. Over the course of more than a century, it has worked tirelessly to develop and implement effective, standardized, safe working practices in a range of industries across the country. Though American workplaces have changed beyond recognition over the course of the last century, this particular legacy of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire continues to save lives. Though the building has since been restored and repurposed, the fire remains a vital piece of New York's history. The memory of it is kept alive by the Remember the Triangle Fire Coalition, a group of more than 200 individuals and businesses who are determined that the loss of more than 100 lives in 1911 should not be forgotten and should not be in vain. Triangle shirt waist, 1911, uh, 112th anniversary. Two of our labor cards deal with this horrific happening. One is Rose Schneiderman, labor card number 11. Worker must have bread, but she must have roses too. Rose Schneiderman's family arrived in the U.S. from Poland in 1890. Lived in an orphanage and went to work when she was 13. She helped organize her factory and in 1909 became a leader of the International Lady Garment Workers Union. Uprising of 2,000, 20,000, strike demanding safer working conditions. Several factory owners complied, but some did not, leading to the terrible Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in 1911. Rose campaigned for women's suffrage and became an advisor to Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh, that wasn't the end of the story. Here's Mei Chen. 1948 to the present day. Saying goes, when fire singes the skin of women, workers, they rise up like tigers. Chen was born and raised in Boston, attended college in New York and California, and began working in New York's Chinatown to improve the wages and working conditions of garment workers. Here it is, garment workers. Same people who were the victims of Most of their workers worked in sweatshops, those secret little places, okay? People are jammed in, left to sit in front of a sewing machine and work from dawn till dusk, sometimes 12, 14 hours. In 1982, Chen and other international ladies' worker garment Leaders organized a massive demonstration of 20,000 
calling the same demonstration of the same name in Japan. I haven't seen that happen. Mostly Asian women workers and other community members demanded holidays and improved benefits for their work. Contractors gave in. Great victims. But mining is horrific. And, you know, before we go around and pat ourselves on the back and commemorating these things as if they were in the past alone, we have to remember the terrible fire in Bangladesh. Thousands of workers lost their lives and the uh, chairman well, let's get to that. That's right now. Let's talk about labor history. Labor history in two. Beginnings of the end of apartheid. And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1960. That was the day of the Sharpeville Massacre in South Africa. Black South Africans were required to carry identification documents. These passes limited who could live or work in designated white areas of the country. This restricted black workers from finding employment, especially in urban areas, if they did not have the required pass. Police would patrol the restricted areas looking for and arresting those without documentation. Black residents organized against this restrictive apartheid regime. At the township of Verning, a large crowd gathered numbering in the thousands. Petrus Tom, a factory worker who had become an organizer for the Metal and Allied Workers Union, described the plans that led up to the demonstration. Inside his factories, workers would wear Away with the Passes stickers. They organized at bus stops, urging workers getting off the buses to burn their passes in defiance of the restrictive law. Petrus said it was the strongest campaign I'd ever seen. The organizers called for a demonstration outside the local police station. The plan was to turn themselves in for arrest for refusing to carry the pass. The police fired into the crowd of unarmed protesters, killing 69 people. 200 more were injured. Most of those shot by police were shot in the back as they were trying to flee the gunfire. Thousands of black South Africans were arrested in the days following the protest. Sharpeville became a watershed moment in the anti-apartheid struggle. In 1996, Nelson Mandela chose Sharpeville as the site to sign the country's new constitution. Today is now honored as Human Rights Day in South Africa. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1941. That was the day that the generators began to operate at one of the most massive construction projects ever built, the Grand Coulee Dam. The dam generates hydropower from the Columbia River in Washington State. The completed structure is the largest concrete dam in the world. 
It's 550 feet tall at its highest point and only 57 feet shy of being a mile wide. The dam is a massive 450 feet thick at its base, tapering to 30 feet at the top. It contains nearly three times the concrete of the famed Hoover Dam. 8,000 people attended the opening ceremony. They were led in a parade by the Grand Coulee High School marching band. But not everyone celebrated the dam. The project submerged fishing sites and burial grounds sacred to Native Americans. One area it submerged was Kettle Falls, a place where Native Americans are thought to have fished for 7,000 years. The project also took its toll on its workers. 77 men died while building the dam. One was Gerald Cobble, a 32-year-old worker who was struck and killed by a heavy steel bucket. During the tough times of the Great Depression, men had flocked to Washington in hopes of landing a job. Thousands found work on the project. The workers labored by shifts around the clock to construct the massive foundation. The Cooley Dam became known as the biggest thing on earth and inspired this song by Woody Guthrie. Well, the world has seven wonders. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Towers, I guess you know them well. But now the greatest wonder is in Uncle Sam's fair land. It's that King Columbia River and the Big Grand Coulee Dam. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1918. That was the day the trial of 101 industrial workers of the world began in Chicago. Their alleged crimes? Speaking out against U.S. involvement in World War I. They were tried under the Espionage Act, but they were really targeted for prosecution because of their outspoken and radical labor organizing. In Chicago, 87 members of the union were held in the Cook County Jail for nearly a year before their trial. The so-called evidence in the case consisted mainly of newspaper articles and letters written by the IWW members. Most of them were before the U.S. had even entered the war. The trial lasted until August. The presiding judge was Kenshaw Mountain Landis, who shortly after the verdict would leave the bench to become the commissioner of Major League Baseball. In all, 150 Wobblies faced charges in Chicago, Wichita, Kansas, and Sacramento, California. Many received harsh sentences ranging from 5 to 25 years in prison. One of those convicted was Ralph Chaplin, the author of the labor anthem Solidarity Forever. In Leavenworth Prison, he continued to write verse. His poems reflected his yearning for freedom, including the lines, Somewhere the dawn breaks laughing o'er the sea. To splash with gold the city's dome and towers and countless men seek visions wide and free in that alluring world that is now ours but no one there could prize as much as we the open road the smell of grass and flowers in 1924 the last iww prisoner from these trials was finally released from prison but the crackdown had taken a major toll on labor organizations across the nation labor history and two brought to you by I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1912. 
That was the birthday of Dorothy Height, a civil rights leader and a champion for black women domestic workers. Domestic workers had largely been left out of the labor protections passed as part of the New Deal. Dorothy had grown up seeing firsthand how this exclusion impacted the women who cleaned homes and did other domestic work. Dorothy was born in Richmond, Virginia. Her mother was a nurse in a black hospital. But when the family relocated to Pennsylvania, her mother could not find work as a nurse. Like many black women who moved north during this time period, Dorothy's mother took a job as a domestic worker. She worked long hours for low wages. As Dorothy became involved in civil rights organizing, she remembered the experiences of her mother. In 1957, she was elected president of the National Council of Negro Women. From that position, she became a leader in the effort to improve working conditions for domestic workers. She became one of the leaders of the National Committee on Household Employment. This committee brought together representatives from 23 organizations concerned about domestic labor. Dorothy explained the urgency of the effort, stating, Let's treat household employment as a profession in which workers have a contract and are assured fair hours and compensation, as well as coverage by our protective labor laws. Today, labor organizers are still fighting to win fair working conditions for domestic workers. Grassroots organizing has led states like New York and California to pass a Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights. Similar efforts are underway in other states to give workers the dignity and the respect that they earn. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History. Okay, and that'll do it for uh, Labor and Love today. Stay tuned. Stay where you are. Coming your way. Flat black plastic. With Scott Walker. H G H. We'll be with you next week, remember? If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, negotiating table that is, where you work, you're on the menu. signing off see you next week or talk to you next week goodbye and good work
DQ-friendly to sports. Vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Patrick Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on mutinyradio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic in the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene. This all-ages open mic invites comedy. Oh, pre-sign by Venmoing 2 to $5 at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio studio and gallery performance space, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street in the deep, deep, deep mission. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun. But every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG's Tuesday Open Mic. And see comics work out new material for free. For free. They get your Tuesday night party on with two-for-one well drink specials during the 6 to 8 p.m. show. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up. Come watch your favorite John Hughes 80s films through a whole new lens. We'll have the subtitles on and the volume low while a panel of feminists critique these beloved movies that shaped a generation with sexist, classist, homophobic, racist plots and characters and settings along with a healthy dose of damage property. Hosted by staunch feminist Pam Benjamin at Mutiny Radio, join us 215 for 16 Candles with Warren Kraut and Emma Brennan. 3-1, The Breakfast Club with Spencer Devine and Dominic Delgadillo. 3-15, Pretty in Pink with Nina G and Allison Reynolds. And 3-28, Some Kind of Wonderful with Mel Michelle. Hey, it's really exciting. We're going to be here, 278 121st Street, screening John Hughes Films with you. 6 o'clock every other Wednesday, Mutiny Radio. Kids, it's your pal, Spiderman. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Mortimer Spiderman. When I'm not swinging through the senior facility, best in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the rhino, I'm headed down to Mutiny Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck. And donate two to five dollars on. Hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses. The print's too small. Hold on. Venmo? That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown in on. It's nap time. 